0: C.S. Lewis wrote these words decades ago. A cultural life will exist outside the church, whether it exists inside or not. To be ignorant and simple now, not to be able to meet enemies on their own ground, would be to throw down our weapons and betray our uneducated brethren who have, under God, no defense but us, against the intellectual attacks of the heathen. I want you to think about that phrase as we get into this lesson, thinking about it's time for a new strategy. The intellectual attacks of the heathen. The church has always been under attack from the heathen. It's always going to be. I mean, as long as you've got the prince of this world, the prince of the powers of the air and Satan, influencing folks, Satan went after Jesus, Satan goes after Jesus' people. There's nothing new about that. And yet, at the same time, when we are thoughtful, when we're creative, when we do the hard work of study and preparation, then we're gonna be able to meet the enemy on the field of his choosing and turn back those false innuendos about Christ and about Christ's people. We would note that God's people weren't always clueless about how to influence the world and its culture. In 1 Chronicles 12 and verse 32, we read of some of the friends and advisors and strong men uh, that were surrounding David. And among those people were the men of Issachar. And the Bible says this of them, they understood the times and knew what Israel needed to do. Now more than ever, we need brothers and sisters in God's kingdom who understand the times and who know what the church needs to do. Jesus shook his head at the general cluelessness and lack of insight of his disciples and the Jewish leaders in both discerning spiritual truths and relating to the larger world. Look at a few scriptures together with me. In Matthew 16, The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Luke 12, when you see a cloud rising in the west, Immediately, you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you do not know how to interpret this present time? And then in Luke 16 and verse 8, the, Matthew, the master commanded, commended rather, the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the children of the light. Look at that last phrase one more time. The people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Have you ever considered what Jesus meant by that? There are a million things he might have meant by that that are certainly included under the umbrella of that. Have you ever noticed how the power of advertisers can get you to buy things that you do not at all need? My wife notices that all the time about me. She says, you're that sucker that they're always targeting because you need this. So I'll tell you this, this is kind of embarrassing, but it illustrates the point. So there's this company that makes these satin pillowcases called Blissy. okay? I saw it on the internet or something, I'm like, yes, that's it, because are you one of those people you always got to wake up and flip the pillow over because it's hot? And they said, this stays cool all the time. I'm like, that's what I need. I, I need the pillow to be cool. So I went ahead and bought two of these things for like 50 bucks or something. My wife said, what are you doing? I said, well, this, this is going to help. She said, no, it's not. She said, have you looked at where they made this? And I said, no, I, I didn't really see. Ohio? She said, no, no. <laughs> they make them in China. She says, the Chinese are making all these kind of things and selling them over here to you gullible Americans. She looked at me and said, you know, and and I got to tell you, it, it doesn't keep it cool. It doesn't do anything that they promised. But now I'm too embarrassed to send it back. And I've been sleeping on it for like the last six months. So I don't think they would take it back anyway. But that's maybe part of what Jesus is talking about. People can sell you stuff that doesn't work, that you don't need, and you'll be gullible enough to get it anyway." Or maybe I'm the only one in here and all of you are way too smart for that. If so, touche. But there's that. There's an episode of the show, The King of the Hill, if you remember seeing that. And, uh, and Hank's son, Bobby, uh, of all people, joins a Christian rock band. And <laughs> his dad weighed in with the following critique. He said, can't you see? You're not making Christianity better. You're just making rock and roll worse. Well, here's the thing. There are a lot of Christians out there that through their actions, they're not really doing anything to make the church any better. They're just kind of weakening their own position on some things. There's a book that I would highly recommend uh, to you to read called The Culturally Savvy Christian. It was written by an author by the name of Dick Staub. And he asserts that there are far too many Christians... They're at a loss for how to impact our culture and reach our world with the gospel. So he says, what we do instead, since we feel really uncomfortable dealing with the world, is that we tend to retreat into our own subculture, which is usually far inferior in the art, the literature, and the music that it produces. If you've ever seen, you know, Christian rock or Christian art or Christian. Well, really, there's just, there's just music, or there's art, or there's sculpture, or whatever. But when we get over here, the standards don't have to be quite as high. Well, Staub goes on to see several problems with American culture, and this would encourage Christians probably just to take a flyer and get away from it. Here are some of the problems with the culture at large. He said it is superficial, you know, which it is. I mean, we talked yesterday about the Kardashians. Is there anything more superficial than the Kardashians? No, you couldn't find anything. Uh, Culture is diversionary, mindless, celebrity-driven. It is also spiritually delusional. No one's going to get any closer to God by embracing the larger, wider culture and and its moralistic, therapeutic deism. They are are basically inventing their own religious uh, credos. And it is soulless. It's not sustained by art or by aesthetic beauty or anything of that nature, but just by the mad pursuit of profit. But because of the problems that we have in combating and confronting the larger culture, Christians tend to react to it in one of three ways. They either cocoon, they just hang out with each other, they don't do anything with people that aren't of the tribe, they're combating, they want to just always be at odds about something, They're boycotting Starbucks for their war on Christmas or something of that nature. Or they just conform. They just go ahead and go all in. I would suggest to you today that there is yet another way. We can transform the culture. We can be the kind of change that God is calling on us to be. And a good example of this in recent times is found in this person, C.S. Lewis, This Oxford Don understood the times in which he lived. He also countered culture by challenging its false claims. He communicated within it by having conversations with people who saw things differently. This is one of the things that I think we've got to improve at as Christians. We act like if somebody disagrees with us, we can't engage in dialogue with them. Those are the people that we should be having dialogues with, not each other. I don't have to talk Josh into becoming a Christian. Josh is a Christian. I don't have to talk Josh into having a biblical worldview. He already has a biblical worldview. But there are others out there that I need to be talking into. So we need to be able to meet with those people. We need to be respectful of those people. And Lewis was great at doing that. And he was also successful at changing the culture by creating it, by producing art and literature that glorified God, and ennobled mankind. All Lewis was doing was following in the footsteps of believers through the centuries, like Bach, Mendelssohn, Dante, Dostoevsky, Newton, Pascal, and Rembrandt, individuals whose genius and work lifted up God and in the process enriched the cultural milieu. If you look at most of the things that are great, about Western civilization, 90% of those things were created by people that looked to God as their inspiration. That's what we're talking about, about changing and transforming culture, not retreating into a little cubbyhole and not having anything to do with the greater world at large. And by the way, the Bible contains a wonderful role model for us to emulate in a similar fashion. That, of course, would be the Apostle Paul. Tertullian asked the question, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Or in other words, what does secular culture have to do with Christian culture? Well, Paul gives us a model as to how to answer that question and how to answer it effectively. In his visit to Athens that's recorded in Acts chapter 17, Paul deals with this in a very effective and a very head-on fashion. And in so doing... He leaves with us some important lessons that we can use to reach and transform the wider culture around us. Let's notice some of those lessons in our time together this morning. Number one, know the zeitgeist. Now, I've already showed up here and and, uh, been reminded of how little of my Spanish that I've kept up with. I was trying to follow those prayers at the Lord's table. I got probably about every fourth word. And that's about par for the course for having four years of Spanish in my educational background. But you know what they say, if you don't use it, you lose it. Well, this zeitgeist is not Spanish. It's a German word. But here's what it means. It is the spirit of the times or the spirit of the age. A good working definition would be this. Zeitgeist is the general cultural, intellectual, ethical, or spiritual climate of a nation or group. It is the general ambiance, moral, socio-cultural direction or mood of the era. So if you understand the zeitgeist of the era, you understand what makes people tick. You understand what people believe, what they're interested in, what they're talking about, what they're watching, what they're hearing, all of these things. And Paul understood the zeitgeist of this great world city, the city of Athens. Paul knew the language. He could go anywhere and speak the Greek language as well as any native Greek. He knew the schools of philosophy, from the Epicureans to the Stoics to the Cynics. He was familiar with the religion. He knew Greco-Roman religion. He knew the prevailing morality, or in this case, the lack thereof. He was not a missionary to a place that he knew nothing about the people in their own language. This is not a critique of the way Churches of Christ do missions, but I've been involved in enough of those that, where are we sending these people to? Cambodia. Do they know anything about the Khmer language? No. But they'll learn it in a year. I'm like, it's it's rooted and grounded in Sanskrit, a 5,000-year-old dead language. They're not going to know it in a year. Then we send them over there, and they're really having trouble with the language. I'm like, raise your hand if you saw this coming. I mean, this is how we do this sometimes. We send kids places they've had no training, they know nothing about, they know nothing about the background of these people, they can't speak the language, and then we wring our hands and say, I can't believe that we're not having success over there. Well, you know, get a clue, people, good grief. Paul was speaking to people that he knew. He knew everything about these folks. Do you think it's an accident that Jesus met this Saul character on the road to Damascus? God had been watching him for a long time. And you remember what the Lord said. He said, this man is my chosen instrument to go before kings and Gentiles and their leaders. And then he adds something that's a bit chilling. He said, I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. Okay, when God sends somebody to do mission work, God sends the right person. And he sends the person that is prepared for this. Well, that was the Apostle Paul. He shows up in Athens, and friends, he's ready. He's ready to do battle. He's ready to talk to them on their own grounds. He's ready to have these conversations because he's been preparing for this for his whole life. He knows it. There's the, uh, there's the legend that centuries before Paul visited Athens, there was a philosopher by the name of Diogenes who lived there. Now, you see this little figure. He's always pictured holding a lantern. Does anyone remember why he was always pictured holding a lantern? He said he was looking for an honest man, and he never found one, okay? You talk about a guy who had a bit of a cynical disposition. He's like, I'm living in the midst of a bunch of heathens, and I'm looking for one gem among them. Well, he didn't. But here's the thing. Diogenes said this while he was looking for an honest man. He said, I, and they said, why are you? so negative on the people of Athens. He said, I couldn't give a hang about Athens. I'm a citizen of the world. That was the Apostle Paul. Okay, all of us ought to have that same sense. Okay, maybe you're from Tennessee or you come from Alabama, Michigan, Oklahoma, wherever it is. You're a citizen of the world. Okay, you're a Christian. God has put you here to represent him wherever it is that you are. And you can do it with just a little bit of work. Number one lesson, Know the zeitgeist, know the spirit of the age in which you're living. Here's a second one. You want to go ahead and make inroads with people? Give them a compliment. Find something good to say about them. Now, as Paul goes through Athens, you could say that his general feeling was one of revulsion. I've been to Athens, I've seen it. There is temple after temple after temple dedicated to false gods and goddesses. Athens is named after Athena, the goddess of wisdom. Paul goes around and sees all these temples. Paul grew up a good young Jewish boy, and idolatry turns his stomach. Okay, so as he goes around and sees these things, there's a million ways that he might go ahead and introduce himself to these people. He could say, what's wrong with you people? He could say, it says in the scripture, thou shall have no other gods before me. Or you shall not make for yourself a graven image. Or an idol is nothing at all in the world. Are these scriptures? Yeah, they are. He could say all of these things. And instead, he pays them a compliment. Look at what he says in Acts 17, 22 and 23. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. In our interactions with others, is it possible that we might find something good about them that we could praise? Or do we immediately have to go to areas of error or disagreement? I'm indicting myself as much as anybody. When I was a young preacher, I was a bit of a firebrand. I have calmed down tremendously over the years. But I remember a lot of conversations. I got in with folks of different church backgrounds, and I didn't have any trouble telling them how the cow ate the cabbage. Okay, I still think generally... What I was saying to them was right. I think doctrinally those things were true. I think my attitude was not very good because I I know and you don't know. I'm right and you're wrong, okay? You ever going to win an argument with that kind of attitude? You're not, okay? Paul goes in and in the midst of one of the most idolatrous cities on the planet, the first thing he says to them is, I see that you're a very religious people. I see that yo know, you, you, religion is important to you. Religion's important to me too. Is it possible that when we start talking to our friends and neighbors and coworkers that instead of just immediately going to that area of disagreement that we might find something about them that we like, that we admire and that we're impressed with and tell them that. Now you think about this when somebody approaches you Do you feel a little bit more relaxed around them if they say something kind to you or if they say something complimentary about you? Yeah, you do. Well, give a compliment. You know, in the past, some people have not necessarily liked some of us in churches of Christ. They think they're the only ones going to heaven. Well, first of all, that's not our call. If you read further in Acts chapter 17, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead, Acts 17, 30 and 31. So Jesus is going to do the judging. It's not you. It's not me. So that's a big load off. I don't have to worry about that. I just need to tell the truth and I need to try to help people and try to encourage people. We can do that by giving a compliment and not by being obnoxious and uh, insulting. Number three, you want to go ahead and make a difference in changing the culture and altering the culture? Know God. Paul could tell these people about God because he knew God. How can you describe someone that you don't know? Well, you can't. How can you explain something that you know little to nothing about? Well, you can't. Paul tells them that God doesn't need a house to keep the rain off his head, nor does he need a barbecue as if he needs something for dinner. He made it all, and it all belongs to him. Paul says God is... and he doesn't need anything, he just wants your heart, he wants your, your soul, he wants your belief, he wants your allegiance. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, this is essentially what Paul is saying to those in Athens. This is what the Lord says, "'Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this.'" that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. You want to tell people about God? You need to know something about God. If you want to explain things about God, you better walk with God. Okay, And if you don't spend that time doing that, you can kind of forget it. I've gone to church at different places, and I wouldn't say that this was ever a majority of the folks, but it was a significant enough number that it bothered me. And I saw a trend in the last couple of decades in some congregations, and the trend was this. Of the 168 hours in the week that God puts at our disposal, there were a lot of people that did not spend a lot of that time doing anything for God. They didn't think about God, they didn't spend a lot of time praying to God, they didn't read God's word, but there would be one thing that I was always perplexed by. They'd show up to that one hour of worship on Sunday morning, and it's like, okay, dazzle me, entertain me. There better be something that happens, and I better leave just floating on a cloud, walking out of here. Can I hit you with some reality? That's not the way this works. If you're not walking with God, the other 167 hours a week, there's not going to be anything that's going to happen in that one hour that's going to magically transform you. It's just not. I don't know what else to say, okay? That would be like me. There's going to be one hour this week I'm going to focus on my fitness, one hour of the 168 hours, and I'm going to eat right for that one hour, and I'm going to do a little bit of exercise, and I might even sneak some cardio in there, and I'm going to lift a weight, and, you know, one hour a week, and, and I'm going to be really fit. And you're thinking, well, what are you doing the other 167 hours a week? You know, eating garbage, scooping up lard with a big spoon, okay? eating. Go- I mean, no, you're not going to be fit. You're not going to be healthy. It's the same thing as a Christian. If you want to tell people about God, you better know God. If you want to represent God, you better spend time with God. Do you notice one of the weird things that Jesus did during his ministry? It's weird to us, it wasn't weird to him. When all the crowds were pressing around him and he had hundreds and thousands of people that were hanging on his every word, you know what he would do frequently? He'd get in a boat, he'd go to the other side of the lake and he'd hide from everybody. He wasn't doing it just to get away from the people, he was doing it to be alone with God. If you and I are gonna have any degree of depth to our spiritual lives. We better be spending time alone with God. And if we're not doing that, shame on us. Here's another thing that we need to have if we're going to be able to impact the culture around us. Number four, speak the language. Now, Paul could reach the Athenians because he was bilingual. And by this, I don't mean that he could speak both Hebrew and Greek, even though he could speak both of those things. But he was bilingual in the sense that he understood the Jewish world, but he also understood the Greek world. Notice how he models this. Two phrases that appear in this sermon in Athens. For in him we live and move and have our being. Epimenides. We are his offspring, Eretus. Some Christians think these words are Paul. And some Christians are too dumb to come in out of the rain. They're not Paul's. They're the words of Cretan poets. Listen to me. If you don't get anything out of this lesson, you get this. Anything that is true belongs to God. It doesn't matter who says it. It doesn't matter who discovers it. It doesn't matter who models it. God is truth, and everything that is true is in God's bailiwick. You know why Paul quoted these things? They're true. Well, yeah, but aren't those guys that that said them, aren't they heathen? Yeah? Still true. Listen, I don't know who came up with 2 plus 2 equals 4. You know, he might have been a barbarian for all I know, but he was also right. 2 plus 2 equals 4. You can look it up, as Casey Stengel said. So what Paul does is he quotes these immensely popular Greek poets, who were the ancient equivalents of rock stars. This was big in their culture. This would have been today uh, like quoting Bob Dylan or Bono or somebody that's a famous musician or a famous artist. Well, Paul didn't just know the Bible is the point. He knew literature, he knew poetry, he knew art, and I imagine if Paul were alive today, he would probably be familiar with... Bruce Springsteen or Bob Dylan or Bono or these guys that are so well known for writing songs. Think of the instant connection and in quoting their own poets that this gave Paul with that audience. They probably made him right away for being Jewish, which he was. But then he's starting to quote Epimenides and Eratus, all of a sudden they're listening to this guy. Because he's got street cred, he he knows their people. The things that matter to them matter to him. So we should listen to this guy. I saw a really good example of this on June the 29th, 1990, at Tiger Stadium in Detroit. This fella, Nelson Mandela, stood up, he was raising money for his African National Congress, and he walked to the podium to raucous cheers. 50,000 people in the stadium, completely full. And this is what Mandela said in that that halting, lilting uh, South African version of English. He said, mother, mother, there's too many of you crying. Brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying. And the place went absolutely crazy. You know why they went crazy? Because Nelson Mandela was in Detroit, Michigan, quoting their favorite son, Marvin Gaye. And everybody listened to everything he said from that point on. What was he doing? He was lessening the difference. He wasn't some politician from South Africa. He was a human being in Detroit quoting a Detroiter. It was like an electric shock that had gone through that packed stadium as people roared their solidarity with this man who had conquered hate and who knew the words of their own poets. Here's my question as we're trying to make inroads with the larger culture. Are we fluent in the language of this culture as we're trying to win hearts and souls to Christ? If all we do is show disdain for the culture and have nothing to do with it, then people are going to have nothing to do with us largely. If we want to make those connections, we've got to reach out and build bridges instead of walls. And finally, number five, if you want to impact the culture, you need to get busy with telling the truth. Listen to how Paul does this in Acts 17, beginning in verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's skill and design. In the past, God overlooks such ignorance, but now commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. God to this point had not judged these people for worshiping false gods in their ignorance. But Paul tells them time is running out. You better get busy and you better understand what the truth is. Well, did they want to hear that? No. Did they need to hear that? Absolutely. Paul would say in a different context, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul doesn't care because there's the time for compliments, but there's also a time for truth. And now Paul's telling them that truth. He said, you want truth of this? Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. You think that's foolish? Go look at it yourself. Go look at the proofs. Go interview the people. Go see, where where is the body? Where is it? You think a Roman guard would have let a bunch of ragtag Jewish disciples come in and steal a body? Are you crazy, man? No. He was raised from the dead through the power of God, and I've seen him, and I'm a witness of this. That's the truth. Now, keep in mind, did everybody believe that? No. Some people sneered, Luke said. Eh, they were with him until he talked about the resurrection. That's all right. But here's what you need to understand. The greatest incontrovertible truth of this world is that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. That will determine where you spend eternity, and it will determine the quality of the life that you have here and now. There are some still sneering today. There's some that are always going to sneer. There are some that if they walked outside and saw the sun shining, they would deny it. It doesn't make it any less true. Tim Keller said these words, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. So the question for us is what you say about that. It's going to determine not just some things, It's going to determine everything let's go to god in prayer our father we recognize that you placed us in the kingdom for such a time as this and father we ask for your blessing for your strength for your wisdom as we try to combat the larger culture around us father we see that the culture is drifting the culture is lost but in the same way that paul walked into athens and made a difference We pray that we can walk into our schools, into our town squares, into our places of business and make a difference in the same way, that we can be good ambassadors for you, that we can know the right words to say, that we can pay compliments, and Father, ultimately, that we can tell the truth to people who are desperately in need of it. Father, we're grateful for all of the blessings that you've poured out in our lives. We're thankful for your grace, for your mercy, and for the patience that you show with us. And Father, we pray that we can show those same traits to others as we deal with them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.